This podcast is made possible by DistroKid, the new standard in digital music distribution. DistroKid is the best way to get your music on Spotify, Apple Music, Pandora, TikTok, and more. Check them out at distrokid.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. For his most recent release, Uneasy, pianist and composer Vijay Ayer is joined by Linda Mayhan O oh on bass and Taishan Sori on drums. The album is masterfully recorded and captures the tension, somberness, and dark-before-the-dawn sentiment of compositions that address subject matter, ranging from the Flint, Michigan water crisis to the Black Lives Matter movement. By setting the stage, animating tones into vivid thoughts, and creating dialogue between instruments, the trio creates a canvas for conversations around these topics and invites the listener to both engage and reflect. Jeff Stanfield chatted with Vijay about the recording of Uneasy and its socially relevant subject matter. Enjoy. I would love uh, just to hear about the band you made this record with and and where it was recorded. Sure. This is a really exciting trio project uh, with some musicians I've known for a long time. Taishan Sori on the drums a real giant of modern music. Uh, I've played with him, made music with him for 20 years or more, a little more than 20 years. And the bass player is Linda Mahan Oh, who is a fantastic um, state-of-the-art bass player and composer, band leader. Uh, I've known her for about 12 or 15 years or something like that. Um, So we have a lot of history together and... It's a joy to play with them both. And my name is Vijay Iyer. I play the piano and I write some music too. And uh, yes, we recorded this in um, December of 2019 at Octaven Studios, um, just outside of New York City in Mount Vernon. The engineer is the great Ryan Streber, who is the founder of that studio. And uh, he also was the one who mixed it. So we had a nice streamlined experience on it all. Yeah, I mean, what, what's interesting about this record tonally to me is it was released by ECM. And in a long list of amazing records that ECM has put out from the 70s forward, you know, they all have a real tone to them. And this record is no different than that. It, it, had I not known it was an ECM record, I put it on, I would say, oh, this sounds like an ECM record. <laughs> and, you know, so, you know, it's interesting to me that you recorded it in New York, um, but it still really has the tonality mm. and sort of emotional sentiment of a lot of those records. And there's something about ECM records that they have a color and a tone that I think is so unique to that label. Mm. Um, and I know Manfred, uh, founder of ECM and was involved with this record to some degree, but, you know, can you talk a little bit about why you think that is in terms of tonality? Well, it's funny because, um, you know, I've made seven albums now for ECM in the last eight years. And um, they're all pretty different from one another. And Manfred was involved to varying degrees in, in all of them. But I'd say this one, uh, just because of 
what happened with both the fact that the recording session could only happen at a certain time and he couldn't be here with us in New York and also that the mix that w- we had scheduled to um, was supposed to happen in the spring of 2020 in France and uh, that was that proved impossible for obvious reasons <laughs> as many things did in the last um, year and a half or so so we um, that's when we decided to mix it with Ryan and you know it helped uh, Manfred had heard the roughs by then um, and he liked the overall sound and approach and you know Ryan's a composer and um, mostly records classical music in that studio and I chose it because of the piano because it's one of the best pianos in the New York area especially for recording it's got all this depth to it and um and uh, you know, many of us have worked with him in other contexts, but it was actually the first time that I worked with him in this format with drums and everything, and people in separate rooms and whatnot. Um, but he was, uh, I think he had a, a, he just had the right sensibility in the sense of like both having that ideal of transparency that you hear in a lot of classical recordings. And also just having an understanding of what drums can do and what uh, what a rhythm section can do and all of that kind of stuff. And, and then, like, you know, I gave him some of my other recordings on the label as points of reference, um, including one another one I had done with Taishon on drums, the Sextet album from 2017, Far From Over, which Manfred had been with us for the mix at least i think um and it was a pretty different sounding album but uh there's that one and then there's the other trio album i made on ecm in 2015 which is called break stuff with um marcus gilmore and stefan crump and that one has a real uh i think like what you're describing that sort of um maybe melancholy or maybe just a sort of sense of space, you know, like there's, there's a, there's silence in the music and around it. And you also have this sense that you're in a place, you know, it's not just notes being jammed down your ears. You're actually kind of almost invited into a room. So I think it's about like setting the, um, the sense of environment you know, that often gets shorthanded when people talk about ECM as like, oh, that's the one, that's the label with all the reverb. <laughs> but it's not all, it's actually not that consistent if you really listen across the full range, right. as you just mentioned, you know, like you've heard a lot, and I, you know, I've been listening to different ECM records since the 80s. And, and maybe I think at that time when I was in high school, I didn't realize that these were all from the same universe, even, you know, like, Meredith Monk and the Art Ensemble of Chicago are on the same label, <laughs> you know, like, and then they right. actually sounded different from what, like the overall, um, I'd say the way the environment was constructed was pretty different, but there is this sense that like you are invited into it. That's kind of, I think the real overall picture. 
So I think finally to answer your question, like um, we constructed the mix with that in mind as a sort of, there were some different points of reference we had, you know, um, from, from both my other albums on ECM and um, of my own, you know, and then other albums I've done that aren't on ECM that had a bit of a different character and sort of found the right middle ground. And then Manfred was okay with it, which was like, a, that was a first for me because this was an engineer that, to my knowledge, he hadn't worked with before. And for it to actually pass the Manfred test was was quite a quite a um, nice surprise. It was um, you know I had every expectation that it would, but still it was it was nice. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that came up when you were talking about that is just for a a, a group that's playing music live together as opposed to somebody that, uh, you know, a group that's doing a lot of overdubs and, you know, perhaps approaching a record uh, in a way that's a little bit more constructed with overdubs, et cetera. I mean, the room plays such a huge part in the personality of the recording. And yeah. so, you know. Um, Though a lot of it, you know, a lot of that is virtual, you know. I mean, there is a reverb unit that is used like, and you know, what watching Manfred use the lexicon and, and like dial in his preferred settings. And it really is like what suits the music from, from his perspective and from the art, artist's perspective. And, um, and so it's actually different. It's a different setup pretty much every time. But also just in terms of the way it's it's feeling, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, you have to communicate with the people that you're in the room with. You have to, it has to be a cohesive place to play yes. music and be creative. So um, you're tackling some heavy themes on this record. Um, and there's a unique challenge in, in trying to convey emotion and storytelling through instrumental music. Can you talk a little bit about your approach to that and maybe some of the conversations that you had with your with your band um, going into these sessions? Yeah, well, it's funny because it's not that we had specific conversations about the material going into these sessions, but it's more that because we have the histories that we have together, including... Um, you know, being out in the world together and then also teaching and learning together at this summer workshop that Tyshawn and I were co-directing for some years up in Canada. So we used to um, be together, all, all of us in, in some way used to be together almost every summer for several years in a row. Uh, and in the context of that um, workshop, we ended up having to tackle a lot of issues because they came up you know they came up in the in the course of just um navigating how people are with and among each other and how they behave to each other and then it's like well we now have to talk about racism and now we have to talk about gender and sexual harassment and now we you know and so it actually just kept coming up so then we kind of all found ourselves at a certain, um, through by working through things together, like that, working through these issues together and talking about them together, 
and just um, and being with people as they struggle through these issues together. Uh, that kind of put us in a frame of mind for just a sincere um, what would I say? It's not even that we're tackling things. It's just that we are allowing them to speak, to let them be sounded in the music. And then the other thing is that these, uh, you know, maybe you're referring to like the first two pieces on the album, which, um, you know, there's the one called Children of Flint, and then there's the one called Combat Breathing. Each one of them was created for a very specific occasion. Combat Breathing was actually uh, the score to a political action that was staged at Brooklyn Academy of Music by this group called Dancing Wild Black in 2014. And Tyshawn was there <laughs> on the, because it was part of a program I was doing at BAM and, um, and he was on it too. So, um, so we, and that was like at the very beginnings of the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, and basically this music was made specifically for that purpose. And it, it persists and it continues to matter because those are still burning questions or those are still burning issues. They're still um, something that grips us day to day, you know, even seven years later. So there's that, and then the you know the piece "Children of Flint" was I was asked to write some music for this thing at Columbia University called the Year of Water, <laughs> and that was when I said, "Well, the Year of Water for whom?" You know, and that's when I wanted to um, just to, uh, you know remind people that that's not such a straightforward um, idea the idea of access to the right to to access to clean water is differentially distributed and the reason for that is structural racism and so that was just a way to remind people that uh, that precarity is not evenly distributed you know and um, and so then yes it is about like writing from that place of compassion and sincerity and maybe rage um, but also tenderness you know
for you as the writer, it's one thing to talk about, you know, give a song a name, a title, give a piece of music a title. Um, and it's, it's another thing to sit down and actually translate that to chords and melody. How do you think about that and approach that? Um, I wouldn't say that I have any consistent method for doing that. I think it tends to be more at a gut level. Um, some musical fragment or passage might reveal itself to me. And then I try to understand why, you know, like how did that get there? Where did that come from? Why is it here now? Why today? Um, and that's when that connection is also revealed to me. You know, it's, it's really like, I'm not trying to be too elusive or mystical here, but that's really what happens is that you listen to your intuition about something and it either feels right or it doesn't, you know? People work in such different ways and people convey emotion in different ways. And I understand that composers and, and musicians are conduits for you know the ether if you will <laughs> you know i think i feel like these things are are sort of out there and they're the ones that are blessed to be able to translate it through their hands mm. and their and their spirit you know um and it's, then it's also like what does the word do or the title do next to this piece of music um does it invite you to listen in a particular way and is that um you know, I've worked a lot with Wadada Leo Smith, and I was actually just asking him this recently um, because we recently made some music that was uh, themed around the pandemic. And, um, and I asked him the same thing, like, what is it that makes this collection of sounds about this set of events in the world? And he talked about sincerity, like I was just saying, and he talked about, um, the moment of inspiration when that contact is made, when that sort of um, connection is made. And then he also talked about the power of the word to sort of open the imagination of the listener and, and invite them um, into the space with you of contemplation or of compassion or of rage even. It's more abstract. I mean, I, I like in instrumental music to, you know, a painting because a painting has a title and it gives you that, that opportunity to sort of reflect upon what you're looking at with the title in mind. And, and this is similar, you know. And then the other thing about it is that it's not just about what I put into it as the composer because the way a lot of this music is set up on this album, it is a very dynamic and interactive and creative medium, which means that what I set forth are just skeletons, you know, they're just like the backbone of something that then is fleshed out in the course of performance among the three of us. And everyone's bringing ideas to the table and bringing emotion to the table and um, relating to one another in a way that uh, something new is born in that moment that's um, maybe even exceeds uh, the initial impulse, but that's part of it. That's part, that's like 
an important part of it, that it's going to become more and it's going to mean more than I can say or than I can even predict. I wanted to talk about a few of the tracks on the on the record and and um you already talked about children of flint and combat breathing but what about tuba yeah can you tell me a little bit about that too yeah um it has a history as do a lot of the pieces on this album i mean some were written for this album but quite a few of them date back some years and this one is actually from a collaboration i did in 2003 with the poet mike ladd called in what language and we were and this is like a one of like one of my first major post 9-11 projects i think it's fair to say and having been in new york at that time and being artists of color in new york at that time and, and experiencing the backlash and the political turmoil and the new atmosphere of surveillance and um and fear you know uh, it was a very emotional time. Um, but the way that the, that whole project closes is with this piece. Um, the name of the poem is Plastic Bag, and it's actually a portrait of this, um, this vendor. Who's like a, he's, a, he's a Senegalese man who is an immigrant who lives in New York, um, and he carries all his belongings with him in this you know those giant woven plastic bags with zippers that are like a kind of plaid um, texture yep. to them yeah so this is a thing like you'll often see members of that community with those bags because those seem to be ubiquitous in the in uh, um, in Africa and in Asia too uh and that, that's a particular sect of Islam that um, a lot of these Senegalese immigrants belong to. It's called uh, uh, Murid. So he's a, Murid is a, is a sect of Islam that has this um, ideal of its, well, the, the, it's, in its lore, the Holy Land is this city in Senegal called Touba, T-O-U-B-A. And then as they migrate to different um, cities around the world, they kind of rechristen their new homeland as Tuba. So here in Harlem on 116th Street, you see a whole strip of stores with the name Tuba in it. You know, um, you'll see these a lot of Senegalese on, on 116th Street um, or on 125th on the market in the markets or like sell, selling things on the street. Uh, and so there was this kind of like sensibility of um, my home is with me. That's one of the lines in the poem, you know. So it ends up being a kind of traveling blues. Uh, and this, this was the music for that poem and it sort of had its own um, grandeur to it that found it uh, interesting to revisit and make new with this trio.
how about entrustment? This is the the last uh, song. It, it closes the album. Possibly my favorite track on the record. I, I love the arc of this song. It's very bare bones. Like, I mean, quite a few. I'd say like this album has this funny, not funny, but an interesting balance of very um, bare music in the sense of what I've composed for it is just uh, almost nothing, like just uh, two chords and a, and a rhythm or something, or just a bass line but no melody, or just um, a hint of a melody that you just hear in fragments, but it's not, um, it's not ever fully stated, you know. So, uh, you know, we talked about combat breathing earlier, which is one of those pieces where it's just like, it's just enough to set things in motion with the group. Um, and this is another one like that, which is, um, it's a space, it just becomes this ritual space, you know, this kind of prayerful space. Um, this was also, this was derived from another project as well. There was um, the, well, I got to travel to Dunhuang, which is in the Gobi Desert with the theater director, Peter Sellers. And there's this incredible, well, there's, it's basically an, an oasis town in the middle of the desert. Um, and so there, it's this like site of millennia's worth of culture, you know, and um, including like this incredible set of several hundred Buddhist cave temples. So that was why we went there was to go look at these, the, the paintings on the inside of these caves that had been carved over a period of several hundred years from like 500 AD to 1200 AD. Um, and it's this incredible like syncretic pileup of different cultures. I mean, Buddhism was a lot of different things over that period, you know, and this was like the, uh, the beginnings of its introduction into China, in fact. So, um, so it was a very, it was like an incredible, one of the greatest experiences of my life to witness this, this like, these monumental works of art that are ancient and some of the greatest artworks I've ever seen in my life. And they were all made for the purpose of um, giving a pilgrim a place to worship, like a, meaning like someone who has traveled through the desert to come to this place, you know. Um, so I guess I was, uh, you know, in the course of this, we were studying a lot of things about Buddhism and specific texts that were found in these caves. And so it was kind of, this is sort of like a prayerful meditation on all of that, on what that might have been like to encounter and um, to uh, surrender yourself to.
Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapebop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time. <laughs>